We've been walking through the Gospel of John, and we are halfway through the chapter 8, and so we are going to pick up where we left off in verse 31. Now, up to this point, John, one of the eyewitness, uh, best friend, apostles of Jesus, has been introducing us to Jesus by introducing us to people around Jesus, many of whom, most of which, don't actually understand Jesus or get Jesus. They don't quite get him. Even the people you would expect to get him and you would expect to understand them and expect to encounter him, in fact, often are the ones that don't get him. The people, the most educated, the religious elite even, are the ones that, as we see from the several chapters leading up to this, have been the ones most likely to miss out on who Jesus was. Now, a lot of this has to do with the fact that Jesus didn't come primarily as a teacher. And so there's a sense in which his teaching is always going to be a little bit cryptic. It's always going to leave you something. It, instead of being the, the content and the, the substance of God's work in the world, they're meant to be a, an appetizer, if you will, for Jesus' work. And so his teaching isn't meant to leave you with like, that's it, that's the answer. It's meant to leave you with a, a deep thirst so that when Jesus dies and raises from the dead, we go, oh, that's the answer. Get the difference? And so Jesus is teaching. There's people who believe, and we're not really sure if some really do or some really don't. And so we're going to pick up in verse 31. You're going to have to bear with me if my volume goes up and down. We're, we're playing with compression. Electronic toys happening so that the quieter I get, the louder I get. Here we go. Beginning of verse 31. I'll do my best. And if I, it's also because if I just start cracking like I was going through puberty, I'm going to stop, drink some tea, and carry on. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that if I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me. A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning 
and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? And Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father. You dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I'd be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. In some sense, I was afraid um, in the last several months to get to to John chapter 8 because I wasn't sure how many weeks I could spend here. And in the first few verses, there is such a wealth of information and encouragement. I feel like I could spend... A year here, but I, I want to spend a week here, intentionally leaving things off, hopefully for, for you and your gospel community to walk through and begin to wrestle with. But in the first few verses, you hear some of the most earth-shattering truths that the Bible has to offer. Remember how we told, we, we began this, this journey through John, where John is such a, a beautiful picture in his testimony of Jesus, a, a picture like the ocean. It's deep enough that Someone could drown in it and yet shallow in some places where a child could begin to wade into it. And we see some of those things here. Jesus says some things. If you remain, abide, if you make your literal abode in my words, then you truly are my disciples. And if you're truly my disciples, then you will know the truth. And if you truly know the truth, then that truth will give you immense and eternal freedom. You remain in my word, you're with me, you're united to me, you're one of mine. And if you're one of mine, then the truth will give you an immense freedom. So let's begin to walk through this. Beginning in verse 31, it says, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him. Now remember, up to this point, walking through the Gospel of John, not everyone who believes in Jesus actually believes in Jesus. And that's meant to be an introductory 
kind of statement for those of you who maybe you're in this room and, and maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. Maybe you wouldn't, wouldn't believe, say, I'm a believer or follower in Jesus. I'm really glad you're here because John, in so many sense, wrote this for you. He wrote this so that we would hear who Jesus is and begin to throw ourselves at him, begin to follow him, give all that we are to him, believe in him. And so as a result, he begins to provoke some of those questions. Who really is a believer? What does it really mean to believe? What does that really look like? And so if you're in this room and you're like, that's a good, I was wondering the same thing. What is it really, who is this Jesus? What does it look like to believe in him? That is the purpose of John's gospel. He wants to begin to show us what the good news of Jesus really is and then help us tease out what it is that a person who believes in Jesus looks like. So he said this to the Jews who had believed, right? And that's meant to be kind of in quotes. So you're like, well, what do you mean? Are these the believer believers or the not believer believers? And so the very first thing we begin to understand is the nature of belief. The nature of belief. There's something going on here. And he begins to introduce us to this. Faith, or that is belief, those are the same words in the New Testament. Faith and belief. We don't, they don't, there's not two words. That in some ways you could say, I faithed in Jesus. That's, that'd be more grammatically correct, at least for the New Testament. We have two words in English for this, but faith is remaining in Jesus, not a one-time declaration. So if you abide in my word, faith is remaining. The nature of belief is remaining. Now, we don't use the word abide, but the closest thing we would use is like maybe someone would have their abode, namely what? Their home, where they live. And so if you live in his word, then you're truly my disciples. Now, even though some believe that Jesus was a prophet, a messiah, even then, John tells us that they didn't quite understand who he was. It was only after his death and resurrection that it began to be clear who he was and what his teachings were actually preparing them to encounter. And we're fortunate. We get to live on the other side of that. But we're talking to, here, John, about some people that are on the other side of the cross, other side of the empty tomb. And it was really only after his death and resurrection that the true believers began to be clear. And you'll say, well, that's really unsettling, Jonathan. How, if, how might we know who really is a believer and who really isn't a believer? And then he begins to, as he's done for the last several chapters, map it out and say, this is what it looks like. And you'll say, that's really terrifying. That's unsettling that we might not know who is and is not a believer. Exactly. That's John's point. Now, I want you to see the encouragement so if you're in this room and you wouldn't call yourself a believer, do you see the encouragement for you? In this room, you're looking around and you're thinking, well, there's a lot of these people that have been raised in the church and they know a lot more about the Bible and they seem to know more about Jesus than me. Are you saying that despite all their knowledge, we're, we're in a level playing field? They have a religious environment. They've been raised in the Midwest where everyone's a Christian, right? Like, and, and, and you're telling me, Jonathan, that is of no advantage to them or to me? Yes. I want you to see the encouragement, especially if you're in this room and you have doubts and questions about Jesus. The religious pedigree of the people around you gives them no advantage. We all humbly look at Jesus and say, you're the one with the words of eternal life. I want you to see the beautiful perspective that John gives us. You could get all of Jesus' titles right, but not necessarily have an advantage over a person who doesn't know the titles and yet lives in a place where they don't believe in Jesus. 
I'll give you a word that describes that kind of a posture. Humility. And something that we do on a regular basis, weekly basis. Worship. What do I do with this Jesus who I don't understand? Maybe I'm a believer, maybe I'm not. What do I do? What's my posture? Humility. What's my response? Worship. I want both of you, the believer and the unbeliever, John here says, ought to be humbled by his nature and his work. So whether these believers, I keep putting them in quotes, whether these believers were true or not true doesn't change that his words were directed towards them, whether they were true believers or not. And they were meant to be dire warnings that were directed towards the people around him with their questions so that they would begin to have deep wonder and deep humility, stirred curiosity, and even teachability. Now John's already introduced us to this theme of fickle faith from chapter 2. Many people who believed in his name when they saw the miraculous signs didn't really trust him, but instead they were just going to kind of use Jesus as the best they could for their own material or political gain. The story can still be told today. But Jesus begins to lay down exactly what it is that separates true faith from spurious faith. Fickle disciples from genuine disciples. Did you hear what it is? If you hold to my teaching, if you abide in my word, if you abide in it, if you remain in it, if you live in it, this is important for us. We say this, I hope, when we talk about the gospel, we are even using the language of 1 Corinthians 15 here, that we're reminded of the gospel, even those who, of us who believe the gospel. If you think that you can graduate from the gospel, you show that you have never, ever believed it. If my reminding you of your sinfulness and God's graciousness towards you bores you, it shows how far from Jesus you really are. Oh, he's talking about the gospel again. There he is talking about the good news of what Jesus has done. If that bores you, then you prove that you don't ever, you've never even believed it. And you above all are the, in the most dangerous position. Look, there are people who, what, they believed. And what does he say? This is what real faith is. This is what real discipleship is. Remaining in my word. It's really interesting. Jesus has never seeming to be, um, to be interested in multiplying numbers of converts if they're not really genuine believers. And so he consistently forces those would-be disciples to count the cost, to measure out and weigh out what it is that they believe, what it is that they worship against his own words. And we're invited to do the same thing. So are these true believers? What does Jesus say? Only time will tell. Time will show where they live. Time will tell where they abide, where they remain. This means for us we go very slow. We're urgent and yet very methodical. After all, John concludes saying, look, my goal is so that people might carefully understand who Jesus is, what he has done, and put their faith into him. But it seems like John wants us also to remember that Jesus, on a regular basis, presented himself in such a way that spurious or superficial professions of faith are eventually unmasked. And even though they flood the ranks of these communities of people who call themselves Christians, ultimately, they've never really been born again. They've never really had a new identity in Christ. 
So if you're here and you say, there is no doubt that I am saved and I am redeemed, John says, okay, have you abided? Where do you live? Where do you remain? Where do you go when it rains? Where do you park your car? Get it? Where do you live? What is your abode? Outside of what fixture do your kids play? You get it? These are the kinds of questions that Jesus is calling us to ask. Okay, all right, you like me, I did some miracles, you think it, maybe, maybe this is serving you in some way, but do you live here? Is this your refuge? What about the secret places? What about the sin you committed last week? Where do you run to for justification? Do you confess that your only hope is that Jesus might justify you? Or do you find refuge in something else? Notice, assurance in the finished work of Jesus isn't the absence of doubt. Instead, it's faith in spite of and in the face of doubt. Often, the absence of doubt is just naivete, right? You're just naive. Assurance is a satisfied hunger and thirst. As we saw this last chapter, it's light where there once was darkness. Do we have questions about that? Absolutely. Where do we take them? To Jesus. And if we find our, our hiding place to be in his word, then there's, there's meant to be a confidence. Where do you run? Now, this is interesting for us. Um, in, in a lot of ways, when he says, you remain in my word and you're truly my disciples, we use these kinds of words to say these aren't just like suggestions for Jesus followers. These are what we would call the conditions of a disciple, right? Conditions. We see this throughout the Gospels, right? You, you want to be my disciple? You put, your, you put your shoulder to the plow? All right, Jesus, I'm going to go to work for you. If you look back, you're not my disciple, You'll say, well, I got it all figured out. I, I, I know the right answers. I win all the arguments about Jesus. He says, you know what the real disciples look like? And do you know how they're known? They're low. He says, look, if you're not willing to hate your father or your mother, then you can't be my disciple. It's subversive, isn't it? He says, if you remain in my word, in his his word, his sayings, what he has said. Now, there we have, a, uh, I would say, a concentric circle view of the word of God. We saw this in chapter 1. I encourage you to go back there. At the, at the center of the mark, of, as we define God's word, is Jesus. John tells us in the very beginning, verse 1, chapter 1, in the beginning was what? The word. And that word is Jesus. And as we celebrate in the season of Advent, that word was not a, a word that God spoke into the, to, to, to the cavernous nature of space that echoed around, but it was a word that came to be with us and for us. That word, God's word for us, is Jesus. What does, what does God say to us in Jesus? He says, before you had even sinned and rebelled, I had already found a way to, make, to win you back. Before there was a cavern between you and me, I had already built a bridge over it. You get it? It's an eternal word, and that word is made manifest in Jesus. That's the center circle. Outside of that, the second circle, we would say, is the Bible, Scripture, because it testifies to Jesus. And we would say that the Bible, as it is, isn't really, per se, the Word of God. Where do I get that? Do you remember what he told the Pharisees just a few chapters ago? He says, you know the Scriptures, 
And you think you have eternal life because you know the Scriptures. What does he say? But you don't realize that the Scriptures ultimately testify to what? Me. And so you can know the Bible. This ought to scare you because this is his interaction with all these Pharisees. You can know the Scripture and miss Jesus. The Scripture only becomes God's Word insofar as it testifies to the person and work of Jesus. So you're like, well, the Bible has a bunch of good lessons in it. Not really. It has a message of hope. It has a message of God's love. Don't miss that. The outer concentric circle would be any other word, right? Any other thing that I say, any other thing that you read. Well, that's a good thing. Well, unless Jesus is at the center, ultimately that word actually will point you away from God. So we see Jesus as the center. You abide in it. We remain in it. We weigh words based on the extent to which they push us to, point us to, and draw us into Jesus. And if we don't, what does it say? Then stop calling yourself a Christian. Stop calling yourself a disciple. Verse 32, and then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Truth. Now, don't miss this. This is an incredible, subversive thing to believe. Christian truth is subversive every every single place that it's implanted. This is profound for us. Knowing this truth will free us. It will free us from any sort of bondage, any sort of limitation. We'll talk about what that bondage looks like in the next, like the end of the, the, end of the book. He says there's ultimately two groups of people. There are people who are sons of God and they know God's word because they hear it. And then they're what? Sons of the devil. Now, as we've been talking about, Jesus seems to escalate the confrontation over and over and over again. He's going to escalate this confrontation until they hang him on a cross. Uh, The things he said are not warm and fuzzy. They're the kinds of things that make you want to either believe and change your life because of them or kill them to shut the person up. That's what happens. They choose the latter. And he escalates the confrontation and says, look, look, if you were sons of Abraham, you would be treating me like Abraham would treat me. If you're really sons of God and you know God, the, the... the holy and perfect God wouldn't be telling you to murder me. And as it is, since that's what you want to do, you're sons of who? The devil, the enemy. Now these are some subversive beliefs that, we, that, that Christians hold tightly to. That evil isn't just a force, but it also is a person. And that person apparently has a lineage, a lineage, a heritage that is people who have not heard and been called into the family of God. You're in one of two places, one of two categories. Hear me clearly. You're in one of two races. The race of the devil or the race of God. Notice how subversive this is in every single place you look. This kind of truth subverts everything that it touches. One of the places we see this is this subverts even political realities. And this is why the truth of Jesus, this, is, this will blow your mind, the more permissive the society, the more Christians will look conservative. The more oppressive the society, the more Christians will look liberal. Think about it. Like The more permissive the society, the more people are like, no, you do anything, it doesn't matter, do whatever you want. The, the more that Christians will seem like real conservative, like actually you can't do everything like God is holy and that's not that isn't consistent with his character and they'll be like 
What do they do? Like bigot, right? Which is an incredibly intolerant, bigot-like thing to say. (laughs) Are you really? Okay. We're for tolerance. What did Jesus... No? You don't tolerate that? That hurts. Okay, so, so like in the more permissive societies, Christians look conservative. Now beware, because a bunch of you just got excited, and you're like, that's why I'm conservative. The pendulum, swing, the pendulum will swing, the context will change, the truth will look radically subversive where it is. In more oppressive, power-hungry societies, Christians look like liberals. Think about it. In the last hundred years, The place where they couldn't stamp out Christianity was Eastern Europe, Poland, Romania. You know the place where they couldn't couldn't shut the people up about freedom? Was the church. And those oppressive, power-hungry societies. You know the people who who tend to destroy slavery over the last 2,000 years? Do you know who people were the most vocal about that? Christians. And the same person, like my favorite example is this, like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I love the cost of discipleship. He holds some extremely conservative views about who Jesus is and what Christians ought to believe. But do you know who killed him? Hitler. Because he was a liberal, an insurrectionist, caught in a plot to overthrow this power-hungry regime. You, you get it? So which is he? What is Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Is he a conservative or is he a liberal? And you find out something. He's free. Genuinely free. Free to be loyal to something regardless of the context. Now this is, I think that the way that we test this, this kind of freedom, um, you you can see this in sort of different categories, how it subverts man-made categories, right? When, when I say, like, Jesus here, that there's two races of people, those in Satan and the lineage of Adam and those in God, the lineage of Jesus, our head, right? Our, the head of our family is either Satan or, and, and Adam or it's Jesus, right? Like, that's, there's two races of people. Well, this is really interesting. One of my um, favorite examples of this, a pastor I really look up to, I heard him say this, and it blew my mind. Because the liberal conservative divide, and I'm not speaking from the Bible here, I think that the liberal conservative divide in America at the moment is not really like red state versus blue state. It's more urban versus rural, right? And so you have like really conservative states with really liberal cities in the middle, right? And the the population leans one way or the other. But but in the the grand scheme of things, the more conservative views live in in the small towns, in rural areas. That's where it can flourish, right? And that's why the, the older brother Pharisees flock to that, right? And that's why the, in the parable of the prodigal son, where did he go? Ran to the city, right? So, so there's kind of the liberal conservative is, is more urban versus rural. It's my observation. I'll give you an example. A friend of mine is a pastor, and I, I heard him say this, and it just kind of blew my mind. He's, he was pastoring in a very rural place where, where some extremely strong, as they would believe, conservative but very traditional views. Never mind, I mean, never mind where the traditions came from, but we have traditional views, right? And so, like, he had this story of, of what was happening in the life of, of this small town, and people have very, very strong views about who you can and cannot marry. Very strong views about who is allowed to get married. Right? And, 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 they're, and they're subtly, um, I, I, they subtly enforce these views. Can you marry someone who's of a different, I don't know, socioeconomic status? Can you marry someone of, I don't know, different age group? 
different social circles, and this was the one that came up there. People, can, you, can people marry people of different races? And so they came to this pastor, and I heard, man, I heard him tell this story, and it blew my mind. I'm just going to try to blow your mind with it. They said, Pastor, tell us. Are you against interracial marriage? And the pastor said, yes, I am. But you know, the Bible teaches that there's only two races. Those that are in God and those that are in Satan. Those that are in Christ, those are in Adam. You get, and, and, and the Bible says not to be unequally yoked. So yes, like, I am against interracial marriage. Because there's only two races. Those in Christ and those not. Now, you can imagine how much they love to hear that, right? <laughs> it was subversive, wasn't it? It subverted their radically traditional and conservative views because in that rural area, they had strong views about marriage. And if you're liberal in the room, you'll say, well, we don't have strong views about marriage. What about in more liberal, permissive societies? Strong views about marriage. Strong rules about who you can and can't marry. Well, who you can and should marry. Not, certainly not who you shouldn't. Who can tell me what to do? do you, and, and you would say, well, well, that was a subversive word in that conservative context. Oh, yeah? You want to be subversive? Go to a permissive place, a city, and say, hey, there's actually some people you should and should not marry. What changed? Did the truth change? No, the context did. So I want you to see that's real freedom. That's real freedom. Ask yourself this, like, are you equally mad at Donald Trump as you are, like, Barack Obama? Right, are you equally mad at, like, George Bush as you are Bill Clinton? Have they both been equally disappointing at being your savior? Because if not, you're a slave. And this is the cool part about Christians. We're so radically loyal to the truth that we're able to speak prophetic words to both sides. And we are free in the truth. And the truth sets us free, even inconvenient, painful truth. Again, we could go on. There's a million examples of it. But like this, there's a subversiveness to this truth. Don't think, oh, yes, I get what you're saying. I'm going to join this group. No, that, like the truth of Jesus sets you free from all of those barriers. You don't think I'm making a strong point here? Listen to what they said. What's the first thing they said after that? We're the offspring of Abraham. Don't miss, their first rebuttal was like, actually, we have a group. We have, we, we, we have identity in this group. That's their first rebuttal. We're offspring, of uh, we're offspring of Abraham, and we've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you will say that you will become free? See the subversive nature of this. Now, this, you would experience this like, Jesus comes and says, I'm going to set you free. My words will set you free. You'll know this truth. You'll be free. And they were like, why do we need to be free? Now, you would experience this as well. If I came to your house, right, um, or even like in a crowd of people like this, but like if I came to your house and I, and I came up to you and I was just like, hey, I can get you out of here. <laughs> right? Part of you would be like, wait, 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 wait. Do I, do I need to get out of here? Right? And if you trusted me, you'd be like, oh, I need, to, I need to go. But if you didn't, you'd be like, what are you saying? You get it? Like even today, like if I just walked up to one of you today, like, hey, listen, follow me. <laughs> I can get us out of here. So it's, it's, you get, it's subversive. They're right to be offended. He's like, I can set you free. And they're like, 
Why do we need to be free? Now, they, they rewrite the history as, as most self-deceived people do. Like, we've never been enslaved to anyone. Oh, yeah, not the, not the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and now the Romans. Certainly not, right? But, but, they, but they, they, were, they were appealing to some sort of, like, internal moral freedom. Did you catch that? Like, they were still like, even though we're clearly not free and the Romans tell us what to do, we still do what we want, right? And so the, the first, the first thought, again, just like if I came into your house and I was like, I can get you out of here, the, your first thought would be like, no, no, we're safe here. I don't need to go anywhere. That's them. They clearly like, no, we're fine here. And Jesus says, truly, truly, everyone who practices sin is a slave. Now, this is powerful. This truth that we rally around sets us free from something specific, namely sin. The greatest freedom that you need is from sin. Now, this subversive word, notice, is a central word. We rally around it. We're set free by it. In a lot of ways, the, the nature of truth here explains the history of the Christian church. It certainly explains the last six centuries of the Christian church. My hope is that it explains every single aspect of the life of our church. A radically truth-centered thing, right? As I've told you before, look, man, there's a difference between the chef and the waiter, right? I'm not the chef. I'm the waiter, right? Jesus is the chef. He concocts the masterpiece. My one job is to get it to your table before it gets cold, right? And, and then you're like, well, I, I want something different on the menu. No, it's chef special every day. I, I, that's, that's, we only serve one entree here, right? This, this explains, I hope, every song we sing, right? And you're like, I, hey, why don't you guys sing that song from Life 96.5? Well, we would like something better than a song loosely based on the Bible. So hopefully, I mean, again, I'm not, I love this good, good artist, good music, I'm not against that, but like, but if we can't kind of put a Bible verse underneath it and say, this is why we're saying it, because it's timelessly true, we're going to be like, all right, let's let, let's, let's let the radio keep that one, right? They're, they're going to do it better than us. Oh, yeah, yeah like, they're, they're just going to do better than us at it, right? I mean, it, again, that's not an excuse to be bad at, like, music. But um, side note, if you're really disappointed with Christian music, I don't know, try Bach. <laughs> yeah. So, so like, there's a timelessness to this truth that gives us freedom, and it ought to explain everything we do. There ought to be a sense in which, like, if you're like, why'd you do that? Like, well, that seems kind of unbiblical. Well, I guess, let's not do that again. Because religious people love to hear that, right? So, so there's a timelessness to this truth that actually sets us free. We get to live in the world and yet free from it. Its influence is something we can leverage for God's glory or not, but in the end, we're, we're free from it. And that freedom, he says here, is not just a freedom to like do whatever we want, but it's a freedom to live as we were made. Look, the truth of the person and work of Jesus is the only freedom for our enslavement to rebellion against the God who made us and the consequences of that rebellion, namely eternal separation from God. The truth of Jesus is the only freedom from the greatest enemy, which is the enemy, the devil, who has enslaved us. And the places where we see his enslavement are what? Did he tell you? Did you catch that? Sin. And the consequences of it? Being cast out from God's presence. 
eternal death. What does he say? Like, if you'll hear my words, in the end, you will not taste death. You won't see death. That doesn't mean that you won't see the inside of a casket, although technically you wouldn't see it if you're in it. Not a helpful analogy, but you, you'll never see the inside of a, of, of a tomb, at least not for a long time. Ultimately, you'll see life. You won't taste the bitter, eternal nature of death. And truth, truth of who Jesus is, sets us free. Don't miss what he's saying. We often think sin is something we do rather than a family we're born into. We often think that sin is a thing we do rather than a slave master under which we live. It's really interesting to think in those categories, and I want to push them to the nth degree. If you really believe that, if you find yourself going like, well, yeah, I sinned, but it was a mistake. Would you do me a favor? This week, don't sin. Don't sin. You see, we often think that, like, sin is a choice, right? This week, I could choose to sin or choose not to sin. I could choose to do good or bad things, and, or I could choose not to do good or bad things. I could choose to sin, or I could choose not to sin. And what you see, that's a false form of freedom. Now, parents know what this looks like, right? Have you, have you ever, have you ever, you've probably done this, right? When you want to teach your children to shape their heart and not just make them good, like, law-abiding citizens, right? You know, you don't come up to a child and say, hey, what do you want for dinner, right? Because that would be some true freedom, wouldn't it? What do you want for dinner? You would never say that. And the parents in the room know why, right? Instead, you, you begin to help them understand by giving them choices. And in a sense, you give them a very false freedom. And you have to say, instead of like, what do you want? You have to say, this, this will help you. This, I know this has helped us. You're like, hey, would you like, would you like, again, it still ends up being like a, what they probably might have chosen anyway. Would you like mac and cheese or chicken nuggets, right? But you say, would you like, would you like spaghetti, right? Or, or would you like chicken strips? And you're letting them look within the purview of their options and go, I want that. But the parent knows what they just did, right? They didn't give them real freedom. That's false freedom. I want to tell you something. One of the ways that you can see whether or not you're living in the truth and living in the freedom of that truth is you're actually freed from every master and even false kinds of freedom. The world offers a very false freedom. A very false freedom. It says you can choose between happiness in your career, happiness in your relationship. You can choose between joy in this purchase. You can, you can choose. But that's a false freedom. It'd be kind of like if I went to my daughter and I said, what do you want for dinner? Would you like chicken nuggets? Or would you like fairy dust? You want chicken, nugget, chicken nuggets or magical fairy dust? And there's a sense in which that's a deceptive choice, isn't it? And my child... It doesn't matter what they say. They're a slave to chicken nuggets. They can think that they're choosing magical fairy dust all they want, but they don't have access to it. They don't know how to make it. They don't know how to eat it. I don't know how to... You get it? It's a false freedom. And the enemy wants you to keep, to keep you enslaved by telling you, this week you're going to do better. This week you're not going to sin. You're going to be able to walk in your own power and you're going to be able to do all the things you want to do. That's like telling a bunch of people, go out, you can eat fairy dust this week. It's not real. It's an illusion. And to chase it 
is exactly what the slave master wants you to do. Boy, slavery really, really kicks in whenever the slave master has convinced the slave that it's actually a good idea to be a slave. Beware of false freedoms. If I told you, choose to sin or not to sin, it would distract from the fact that you were born into sin. The problem isn't that you will sin this week. The problem is that you think you might not sin this week. You were born into it. Did you catch it? You have to be adopted out of it. It's a false freedom. A true freedom, this is really profound for us, the world says that true freedom is self-rule. True freedom is self-rule. This is, this, has, this is our constitution, right? This is freedom from outside rule. And this is a radically subversive view for Christians. Freedom is actually the freedom from self-rule. We often think freedom is the freedom to do what we want. Freedom, in fact, in Christ is the freedom from what we want. Thanks be to God, he doesn't give us what we really cry for. It's a paradox that the day you relinquish self-rule, Jesus says, is the day you find freedom. The day you relinquish your own ability to do right things is the day that God indwells you, empowers you, and gives you freedom to do right things. It's a paradox. He's saying, look, don't, it, it's not necessarily like who you are, it's whose you are. And so while you're off chasing these things, Jesus is like, come and be mine. Come and be owned by me. And you'll say, that sounds crazy, but what does he say about his burden? What does he say about his yoke? It's easy. It's light. Look, you will submit to someone. The question is, does that someone love you or does that someone want to use you to get what they want? And Jesus says, look, when you relinquish this, that's when you find freedom. Now, here's your objection, I bet. Well, I serve no one. I do whatever I want. Did you hear it? You're a slave to your own independence. Would you be honest with yourself about how lonely that is? You know why you fear commitment? Because you're a slave to your own independence. Abide. Remain. Draw near to Jesus. Abide. A disciple is a lifelong learner. Are you really free from your own lusts? Can you turn them off? And friend, abide. Are you free from your own ambition? Can you rest? And friend, hear the truth. There's a safer, more liberating place at Jesus' side. His words to you are not words of oppression. They're words of liberation. And when you relinquish the right to your own self-rule, Think of it this way. You might say, like, no one tells me what to do. Have you thought that the only reason you say that is because you're a slave to your own ego? Have you ever thought about telling your ego the gospel? Like, have you ever thought about preaching the lordship of Jesus to your ego? That's where you'll experience freedom. Because the ultimate freedom is freedom, not from political slavery, but from eternal slavery. And some will even ask, right? This, 
After all, if you're not free from sin, then you won't use political freedom to do any good. You could have all the political freedom in the world. You could have autonomy, and you'll still be unable to not sin. I mean, the most powerful people, like, ask yourself, are, are the most powerful, like, the free people with all the money, with all the influence, how are they doing at, like, living moral, upright lives? We thought about that. Without this freedom from sin, your political freedom won't help. You'll just use your political freedom to sin. And some might even say, well, why doesn't the Bible try to overthrow slavery more? It's because the people in the Bible knew that even if you freed people from slavery, but set them into a spiritual tyranny, the political freedom would not help. However, if you set people free from sin, here's what you'll find. Political freedom will follow. People who have been set free by Jesus find it really hard to tell other people what to do. People who have been genuinely set free by Jesus find it really hard to oppress others because they know exactly what spiritual oppression used to be theirs. Again, that's why, that's why the loudest voices against things like slavery for the last 2,000 years, oppression, are almost always Christians. They're free. They're free to say whatever they want about who Jesus is. It's freedom from self-rule. Freedom to finally not be subject to your ego. Beware of these false freedoms. In the end, you're called to be adopted out of it. And Jesus uses the rest of the passage here. I told you, how, I don't know how far I was going to get on this. Jesus used the rest of the passage here to begin to interact based on that freedom. What does this freedom look like? And they say, this is the family we're involved in. And he says, we're actually not. Your works say you're not. But in fact, you're a slave to sin. You couldn't stop sinning. However, if you begin to realize the freedom from sin that I will accomplish, that I will grant to you, this truth will set you free. And verse 35 says that the slave will no longer, like, like, will no longer be outside of the house, but instead the slave will come and be a part of the house and will become what? Did you see the word in verse 35? The son is the one who remains forever. The child, the family. It's like this. It's like a... It's like you and I on an auction block and the rich benefactor coming in and paying an exorbitant price, taking our place to go into slavery so that we could be adopted by that person's father. It's absurd. The dream of being like bought out of slavery to be adopted into a household and a reconciled home. You, like this is crazy. This, the slave thinks of God this way. The son thinks of God this way. For some of you, just be set free from the fact, I'm, have you ever thought that God is not afraid that you're going to mess up? Like God's not worried about what you'll screw up in the next week or month. Is it possible he's already like paid in advance? And so for some of you that live in this fear that God's going to pull the rug out from underneath you, I know what that's like. Right? If I don't measure up, if, I don't, if, I, if I'm not good enough, if I'm not worthy, he's going he's gonna to pull this out from underneath me. Don't miss that. That's the words of a slave. But in Christ, that's not us. Romans 8 says it this way, Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, 
For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are what? Sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by whom we cry, not master, not boss, but we cry, Abba, Father, Dad, you're my father. And the Spirit is the one who bears witness with our spirit. Not that we're slaves, but what? We're children of God. And if we're children, then heirs. And heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We inherit everything Christ inherits. So what do they appeal to? They appeal to a different kind of lineage. We're from Abraham. And he says, actually, and this will get you hung on a cross, actually, that's not your dad. Your dad is Satan. Your dad is the devil. Now you'll notice at the very end when he has this mic drop moment. Did you catch that? Verse 59. Finally, they're like, you know, I'm the one Abraham has been looking to. And they're like, you're too young to know Abraham. He's, he's been dead for hundreds of years. And he says, yeah. But it just so happens that before Abraham even was, he uses the words, the divine words here that God would have used to tell Moses to go declare a powerful truth to, to Pharaoh to let his people go out of slavery. What did he say? I am. And then he just kind of drops the mic and walks, the, the crowd, like they, they get together to kill him and he just disappears. He's like, that's enough, I'm going to leave. And he shares with us this picture of two lineages. Did you notice all the language about fatherhood? Jews answered him, we think you're a Samaritan. We think you have a demon. And he's like, I don't have a demon. I'm with my father. And he's like, well, we think you this. Well, no, my father told me that. Well, we think this. No, we, this is actually from father. Notice this. What others think is immaterial, especially for Jesus here. God's approval is everything, for he's the judge. And Jesus identifies that the ultimate fulfillment in all of Abraham's hopes and joys. The ultimate fulfillment of Abraham's hopes and joys is himself. He identifies as that ultimate fulfillment in his own person and his own work. God's promise to make him a blessing through which all the nations would be blessed, Jesus says, is happening and it comes through me. Don't miss what he says. True freedom is an experience of fatherhood. If you're like me, you've had a steady, stable, assuring, and affirming father, but odds are there's about seven out of eight of you in this room that your father has abandoned you, abused you, used you. At the very least, put a standard on you you could never live up to. Don't miss what he says. The true freedom is knowing our true father. Let me take you back to elementary school. Some of you have maybe had the same experience. I remember on the playground, a couple of my friends engaging in the age-old debate. I bet my daddy can beat up your daddy. You heard this? Now, this is a beautiful thing. I don't think women do this. This is one of those areas where God, I think, built us really well, like women to be strong where we're weak. But I've never heard a woman or girl say that. Little boys having this argument, and they wanted to draw me into it. And they were like, Jonathan, what do you think? First of all, I was like, I didn't, know, I didn't know our dads were mad at each other. Like, let's start there. I didn't know. 
I didn't, I didn't know that. There's a, like, why does your dad want to beat up my dad? They were more adamant about that together because my dad had helped coach uh, one of our soccer teams, and they'd seen my dad. He's kind of athletic, and they weren't real like, my daddy could beat up your daddy. He was more like, my daddy could beat up his daddy. Definitely beat up his daddy. <laughs> what do you think, Jonathan? And again, I, I noticed a couple things. First one, I didn't know my dad was mad at your dad. I didn't know there was a fight coming. I didn't know we needed to know. But the second thing I learned, there was a deep sense of identity and peace wrapped up in who could win that argument. I have good news for you. Jesus comes to these Pharisees and he comes to you and he comes to me. And he doesn't say, I bet my daddy could beat up your daddy. He comes to the Pharisees and to you and to me and he says, my daddy has beat up your daddy. That abuser, that accuser, that, the one who abandoned you, the one who molested you, the one who left you, he has been destroyed by my father and now you are adopted into his family. Experience the peace that comes from that. Such that now we can say like the spiritual with the Reverend Dr. King in his late words, free at last. I'm free at last, thank God Almighty, by the love and grace of Jesus Christ I've been adopted and now am free at last. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that the word you speak over us is not the word of an abuser, but instead the word you speak over us as a loving and tender father. As we sang early, we, earlier, we, we come to you now joyful and triumphant. Not because of anything in ourselves, but because our father has sent our brother to come and take the penalty we deserve, such that now we live in a radically subversive freedom. No one owns us not even ourselves, not even our own sinful desires and lusts, but instead there is a victorious word, a triumphant word spoken over us in Jesus. God, would some in this room who have deep doubts and fears about that begin to open their eyes, begin to realize the truth of that word and experience the ensuing freedom that we would know that we are possessed and loved by a God and Father who has emptied heaven to make us his own. Maybe for the rest of us, we quickly slip back into, as Paul said, the yoke of slavery. We quickly, like dogs, return to our vomit. Would you remind us of the true freedom, the true joy that comes in knowing Jesus as our brother, our co-heir, that we will inherit all the grace and joy from our Father because of his work. Remind us of that. Renew our joy in that. May we look to him and in his name experience joy and peace forever in its in that name that we pray, amen.